where I just want to worship a little bit longer. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys understand that a little bit. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 13. And no, I haven't forgotten that we're doing a uh, series on John 3.16. But I think that I have read the passage on John 3.16 and done recap enough to where you guys understand and know John 3.16. If you haven't memorized it yet, but I'm sure by the time that this is finished, you will have John 3.16 memorized. Uh, we are going to be in uh, Matthew 13 and verse 1. And just back to what I was saying, you just you get into this mindset, and it's almost this, this God-entranced focus to where you're singing and people are singing around you. And it's not even about how talented she is or how untalented I am or anyone else's talent or lack. It's just about people coming together in harmony. And I don't mean harmony in the musical sense because I'm sure we were not in harmony. We were not harmonizing with one another, but it's harmony in the spiritual sense when all these people are coming together with one focus, one accord, one mindset, one goal, and that's to praise God. And then you have to stop that. That's not really true. See, we're not stopping worship and transitioning to preaching. Because if preaching is done correctly, preaching is supposed to be another form of worship. It's supposed to be just transitioning from the musical aspect of worship and transitioning into the logic and the rational side of worship and understanding God, theology, study of God, understanding who God is and the things that He's revealed to Himself. You know, some of the great theologians have said God is undefinable in that he's self-defined and he's undescribable in that he's self-described. We cannot define God apart from his given definition of who he is. So anyway, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We did the context study. We know what Nicodemus was asking. How to be born again. How to be born of the Spirit. Essentially, Nicodemus is asking, how do you get saved? How, how is that possible? And Jesus says, if you haven't been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter it. Then he gives the scriptural connotation. And we won't go back into that whole recap. But in our study so far, we have learned that salvation is all of grace all of God, all of Jesus. And today we'll learn the fourth part of what salvation consists of. All of grace, all of God, and all of Jesus. So you, at the top of your notes, if you're taking notes, can put all, salvation is all of blank, or just put all of blank. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. I think I need to pull a chair over here if I'm going to preach like Jesus. And then the whole crowd stood on the beach. See, let's reverse this. Everybody stand up, and I'll sit down, and I'll sit down and preach while you guys are standing. That's the way Jesus did it. He had the right idea. <laughs> and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." 
can I just take a second and tell you, and maybe you already have realized this, faith is difficult. And I'm not talking about my wife faith, although that can be true some of the time. Love you. <laughs> if looks could kill, if looks could kill. But no, faith, spiritual faith is difficult. If anyone ever tells you that Christianity is easy, yeah, entering into Christianity is easy, but Christianity in and of itself, enduring, persevering, continuing to the end, is difficult. In America, it's extremely difficult to be a true and authentic Christian. And it's not because of the outside persecution. It's not because of all people coming to potentially make you a martyr in your faith. No, Christianity is difficult because there's so many things that can catch your attention. And everyone takes Christianity with a grain of salt. And it's just something that you add to the list of things that compose who you are. It's not the all-encompassing facet of who you are, but it's just something else that you add to who you are in America. It's, yeah, this is my job. This is my recreation time. This is what I like to do. This is where I spend six and a half to six and three quarters of days of the week doing. But yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't pray. I don't read my Bible. I don't do this. But I am a Christian in that I have identified myself with Christ. In America, we have invented what's called nominal Christianity. It's saying that we're Christian, but we're Christian in name only. Someone can't look at our lives and discern us from anyone else in the world. There's nothing about us that makes us any different. And I'm not talking about me in particular or you in particular. I'm talking about the general population of those in America that call themselves Christians. In some of the studies, they say that less than 2% of actually people that actually claim the name of Christ live what the Bible would identify as a Christian life. Faith is difficult. And I want to take just a second, and I want, I'm sorry I'm doing this. My sleeve keeps catching on my elbow. I want to take just a second, and I want to tell you a little bit about how I became to become a Christian. Just a second. I ain't going to take long. I ain't going to take long. I am such a hick. I'm not going to take long. So I grew up in church to the age of like four or five, so I couldn't really say I grew up in church, but I knew about church from a very early age and then fell away. Uh, after my parents split up. And then when my stepdad got brain cancer before he died, we started attending a Baptist church. So I was reintroduced to the Christian faith. But as soon as I got old enough to make decisions of my own, I walked away completely and got into everything that you couldn't, that you shouldn't do as a Christian. Everything. And because there's little ears listening, I won't go into any kind of gross detail. But I got into all kinds of things that I shouldn't. My life went down a very, very dangerous trek. And one evening I was sitting at the house of some un savory characters doing some unsavory things and from within me I heard a voice and it wasn't the audible voice of God it wasn't like Samuel and I'm like wait a second who said that it wasn't like Paul and Damascus Road where I was knocked off my seat it was just some still small voice from inside me urging me to go to church that I did the following Sunday and that happened over the course of three weeks until I finally broke down walking into the foyer of a church and felt like someone had dropped a 300-pound anvil on the top of my head and couldn't stand up. I sat down in the chair, and me, one of the most unsavory characters that you could possibly meet, sat and cried in the church chair of a foyer for at least two and a half to three hours until the church service was completely over. And that was on July 24th of 2011. I remember everything about it. I can remember the smell. I can remember that the minister was not that educated of a preacher, though he preached his heart out. He was preaching a series on Mark, and he was preaching a message called, I will make you fishers of men, and I only heard the end of it. But that moment was so 
fixated in my mind because something had happened. And there, from there on, God delivered me from so many things. And I came to have a radical relationship to God, a relationship that made people who call themselves Christians feel uncomfortable in the way that I was living my life because it made them realize that they weren't doing some of the things that I, were, I was doing. So it made them realize that there was something different about my Christianity than their Christianity. There was some drastic contrast between what they were saying was the Christian lifestyle and what I was exemplifying was the Christian lifestyle. And that's not to say I was perfect. I was just authentic and radical about my faith. I got a job because my other previous means of income were not legal. So I ended up getting a job too. I got a job at Lowe's unloading trucks and I got a job delivering pizza. And I was so hungry and so zealous in my faith and so much without wisdom and knowledge that one day while delivering a pizza I decided it would be a great idea to pray while driving. And I'm not talking about praying in conversation, keeping your eyes open. No, I'm talking about an authentic praying with my eyes closed while I was driving down the interstate. And I totaled my car. I called my boss and told them that I wouldn't be able to make that pizza delivery. And the first thing they said was, make sure you take the pizza sign off the top of your car. <laughs> so, and then after I had done that, they asked if I was okay. But the Bible strictly says that wisdom without knowledge, or zeal without wisdom is not a good thing. So sometimes it's good to be zealous, but sometimes it's uh, good to understand how to channel that zeal. That led me to each morning, I was unemployed, uh, the house I was staying in, each morning I would get up and have my devotion time. A pastor of a local church would come pick me up, we would have devotion time together, I would spend that day street evangelizing, and then I would go home and read and study and pray. And I read and studied and prayed for 15 to 16 hours a day, every day, for almost a year. And the reason that I'm telling you all of this isn't to brag on how authentic or how zealous I was. The reason that I'm telling you all of this and all of the radical miracles that God has performed in my life up to this moment, right now, who I stand in Christ, where I stand in Christ, if I was to walk out that door, walk away from the faith, all of it means absolutely nothing. If I was to walk away, put this microphone down, walk away from Jesus, become apostate of the faith, and give everything up, then I, when I died, I would go to hell. Because see, all the works that I did, all the zeal that I had, that's not what makes me a Christian. What makes me a Christian is the fact that I am filled with the Spirit of God on the inside of me, and His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a Christian. If I walk away from that, if I don't persevere to the end, rather, better terminology, if God doesn't preserve me to the end, then I will go to hell. Regardless of the 15 to 16 hours a day, regardless of the devotion, regardless of the street evangelism. Because see, all of those, all of the street evangelism, all of the hours of study, that's all great. But God is calling us to persevere to the end. How many times in the book of Revelation does it say to he that overcomes? The ESV actually says to him that conquers until the end. To him that overcomes. Paul says it this way. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have ran the race. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12 verse 1. It says, seeing therefore that we are encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. The cloud of witnesses, a lot, I've heard people spiritualize this and preach this so many different ways, but it's, it gets into utter foolishness when they talk about the cloud of witnesses and being, I've heard people preach and say that there's ghosts around us and all kinds of crazy outlandish things. The cloud of witnesses is actually going back to Hebrews 11 and where it lists the hall of fame of faith. It's talking about Abel, 
Even though he's dead, yet he speaks. Enoch and the life that he lived. Elijah, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all of these great men and women of faith throughout Hebrews 11 that are listed in their works and their ability to hold on until the end. Hebrews 12, it says, seeing that we have these witnesses, all of these men and women that have held on to the end, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with patience. But the actual best way that that word patience is translated, the ESV translates it as endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance looking unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God. Some of you guys know this and some of you don't. When I was in Tennessee, before I stepped away, went to Lazy Boy and then become a full-time minister, I worked as a correction officer in a local prison, an intake facility where they had some of the worst prisoners in the entire state. And before I was able to assume that post, I had to go for four weeks to a training camp. And basically it was to make sure that I was physically and mentally, psychologically able to do the job. And one of the things that you have to do is you have to run a mile and a half in a certain time limit. And now, I was a lot more physically fit at that time than I am now. Um, and so when we were running this, I wasn't the first one to finish. There was some little skinny kid fresh out of high school that ran a mile in like four minutes. But I was like the second or third person to finish the mile and a half. When we finished, because we had developed a bond, one person I developed a bond with in particular was a guy that we called Deacon. He was Episcopalian. He was an Episcopalian priest and had the worst language of anyone I've ever met in my entire life. But he was an Episcopalian priest. I don't know how, but he took people's confessions. And so I like to talk Bible with him because he was a country bumpkin that wore his gray spandex shorts with suspenders uh the funniest he he was just the big square glasses that took up over half of his face i loved this guy and i knew that he no more knew who christ was other than what the bible said surface level than the man on the moon but i loved him but he was so out of shape so when i finished as soon as i crossed the line i turned around and i ran back and he had probably finished three quarters of a mile by that time, if that. And the whole time, and I wasn't the only one that did this, several people that finished first ran back and got beside people that they had made connections with. And that we'd get beside them and we'd say, you can do this. You can do this. You can keep going. Don't slow down. Don't slow down. Don't stop. I know it's hard. I know you're pushing yourself. I know you want to stop. I know you want to throw up. I know you want to fall down. I know you want to stop and you want to start walking, but don't. You've got a time limit. You need this job. You can do this. And the whole time we were running, we kept doing that. We kept encouraging them. Like, you can do it. Don't stop. And then when we rounded that last corner, if any of you know about track, it's a 400-meter circuit. Four laps is a mile. So it's six laps to do a mile and a half. When you round that last turn, and you're on that last straightaway. You've seen sprinters do this. When you hit that last turn, you pour out everything that you've got. The last sprint, you're almost home. You're almost there, give it everything that you got. And the person who was sitting there running, and their run was barely faster than my walk, at this point, pours on the gas and they haul it. And it's like they don't even make it to the line. It's like they <laughs> fall across it. 
but they finished. And that's what it's saying. Seeing that we have this cloud of witnesses, seeing that we have this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside those weights. Let us run with endurance. And what that cloud of witnesses is doing, these people that in Hebrews 11 that have finished their race, they're in the Word encouraging us, you can do this. I know it's hard, but you can do it. And if for a second you get discouraged and you think you're about to stop, you have the ability to look to Jesus who is our finish line and you can pour on the gas because He's not just the finish line. He's the trophy and the prize awaiting us at the finish line. Like I said, if we can't make it to the finish line, if they were, any one of those individuals when they were being tested, if they were to stop halfway through and walk off the track and go home, they wouldn't have been able to acquire that role. They wouldn't have been able to get that job. They wouldn't have been able to be certified by the state to be a correctional officer. The same way, if we don't make it to the end, we don't get to enter in. That's actually a pretty good catchphrase. Don't make it to the end, don't get to enter in. I'm going to tag that as a slogan. There's a story in the Old Testament, and Jacob, he's returning home after he's been away, and the last time that he had seen his brother, his brother said, I will kill you if you ever come back. I will kill you. And so he's entering in, and some messengers come and tell him and say, your brother has 400 people riding on horseback. They're coming to meet you. And so Jacob, naturally, he's like, well, send our first lot first, and send the, some cattle next, and send some sheep, and then send my family. And what he's doing is he's like, send these as an offering so that if Esau, his brother, gets them, maybe he'll be appeased with that offering and turn away. So he's being smart about his money because he don't want to give up everything all at once. But lastly, he sends his family across the river of the ford Jabbok, and he stays beside on this side and spends the night. And he's walking there, and out from behind a rock jumps this man and grabs him and starts wrestling with him. And so it's actually an angel of God that starts wrestling with him. But he, I assume he thought it was Esau. I mean, I would have thought, if I thought my brother was coming to kill me and I'm walking at night and somebody jumps out from behind a rock and grabs me, I'm going to assume that it's probably the person I'm thinking is planning on killing me. But he wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles. And it's almost, they wrestle all night long and it's almost daybreak. And the angel starts to get away. And people have pictured that Jacob gets the angel in a chokehold. That's not the case. I believe that Jacob grabs the ankle around, uh, the angel around his ankle or around his shin and just holds on. And the angel says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so the angel does as he asks. That's the picture that we ought to have in our mind is, I will not let go of Jesus until I make it to the end. I will hold on for dear life until I get that final blessing entering into the courts of the Lord. I will not let go. I'll wrestle with everything I have. I don't care if it costs me all my physical strength, if it costs me all my finances, if it costs me all my friends. I don't care what it costs me. I'm holding on to Jesus until the last second, until the very end, until He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Until He says that, I will not let go. I'm holding on to the end. If you want to turn to uh, Luke 8. Matthew 13 explains the parables. And I could have just read on through there and we could have went from that direction. But Luke has a little bit more of a descriptive explanation of the parables. So I made you read the parable of Matthew because it's more lengthy, but you get the explanation from Luke. So see, you get two men of God. 
going to be Luke chapter 8, verses, verse 9 through 15. And when his disciples asked him, what is this parable meant? What is meant by this parable? He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, for they believe for a while, and in the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that good soil, they are those who, hearing the good word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Here in a minute, we're going to go to Romans 10. So if you want to, while I explain this, you can go ahead and start flipping that way. So the sower goes out to sow recapping the parable that we started with and he sows seed and some falls on the wayside and the birds of the air come and pick it up and Luke explains for us here that is the devil coming and picking up that seed of the word that has been sown now the one thing that it doesn't say is why the ground is the state that the ground is because see a farmer they are the ones that plow until the ground so they prepare the ground to accept the seed now in this case the Bible teaches very clearly that sin and unbelief harden your heart. And in this case, we are looking at ourselves as the ground, we're the soil. The Bible calls us earthen vessels. Adam was literally made from the dust of the ground. When you see dust in your house, that's actually dead skin cells. The Bible says from dust you came till dust you go, you're slowly putting off skin cells, going back to dust. That's a little bit more than you wanted probably. but. The point is this, our sin and unbelief hardens our heart so that the Word of God does not take root. And the devil is waiting until that Word hits that hard heart that he can strip it right away. Some people in church, and I know none of you are guilty of this, but I will confess I have been in church and been guilty of this. I have been sitting in church as a leader in a church, confession time, I don't have my box with my Episcopalian friend, but I have been sitting in the pew of a church where I was actually a leader, where I actually preached regularly and been so caught up in my own thoughts about work the next day, about the football game that was coming on as soon as I left, how I so wanted the Chicago Bears to win. I have been thinking about my fantasy football stats. Wink, wink. I have been sitting in church thinking about Aolas, which y'all don't know what that is, and Lord help you because that place is a slice of glory. Hispanic restaurant. I have been sitting in church thinking about food after church. I have been sitting in church and know what the preacher is preaching and not even letting it affect me, not opening myself up to it, coming from the perspective of, I already know this. This isn't going to touch me. And because I've done that, 
my heart, even in that instance, was hardened to what was being preached and what was being ministered. It wasn't because of my sin, although that is sin, having lack of honor and reverence for who honor and reverence is due, but because of my lack of focus, because of my irreverence in the sanctuary, because of my desire to be consumed with other things. When we do that, the devil isn't just waiting for us to walk out the door. He's literally waiting in the sanctuary to steal that seed of the Word of God from us. The next type is the seed that was sown, and it was sown among rocky ground, so the roots didn't grow that deep and the plant shot up. And we all have had these types of Christians in our lives, or these types of people, where we get saved and they're just as radical or more so than we are at the time of our salvation, where they can out-preach us, they can out-pray us, they'll go and they'll out-serve us, They'll out-minister. We're at the church three to four times a week, but they're at the church six or seven times a week. We're evangelizing to one or two people a week, but they're evangelizing to like 10 or 12. And they're just absolutely making us, even though we're trying our hardest, they're making us look like lousy Christians because they're just so zealous. But then two months later, they're not even in church. They're what I like to call firecracker Christians. Shoots up. Big pop, big bang, big spectacle. Everybody sees it. Lots of colors, lots of light. Pretty show. And then second later, it's nothing but a puff of smoke. And it, you don't even know that it was ever there. But the thing is, is we don't even realize that that doesn't have to be just a couple week thing or a couple month thing. There are people in the church that have been in the church 15 and 20 years and served faithfully and then walk away. Because maybe their roots grew just a little bit deeper than the others, but it still wasn't deep enough for when the actual storm came and the actual persecution came. They didn't have enough root. And they shriveled up and they left the church and gave it up altogether. Remember what I said? Even everything that's happened to me, if I walk away, then I'd be nothing more than a firecracker Christianity because time and eternity are separate. So God's not going to value my 10 years of service more than per one person's one month of service when it comes to it and we're putting our good works up against our failures and our sins. And if we want to be tried and tested by our works on a works basis, then we're all going to fail. Completely, utterly fall short. Because even if we never sin, we could still never attain the righteousness that Christ has. Because Christ's righteousness wasn't just that He didn't commit sins. He didn't leave out anything God told him to do. See, we look at sin in a commission factor. Like, as long as I don't do these things, then I'm good. I'm righteous because I'm not looking at these things online. I'm righteous because I'm not reading these books. I'm righteous because I'm not talking to that woman in a certain way. I'm righteous because I didn't punch that person in the face the other day in the store when they cut me off with their shopping cart and hit my ankle. I'm righteous because I haven't done these things. I'm righteous because I haven't picked up those drugs. I'm righteous because I haven't gotten drunk in so long. I'm righteous because I don't do things. But there's also the sin of omission, which is when we leave out things that God's told us to do. When we leave out the giving and we say, well, I'm not really going to tithe according to what the book says. I'm going to count this instead. Or I'm going to do this instead of tithing. And I've been there and I've done that. That's a sin of omission just like the others. They're the same. It's still sin. Or I know that technically 
I feel it in my heart to go evangelize to that person and share with them the gospel. But I'm not going to do that out of fear or out of hesitancy. Maybe I don't know what they'll ask and I won't know how to answer their questions. That's okay because people still ask me questions that it's pretty hard for me to answer and I don't always get them right. There's just as big of an accountability for sins that we, of things that we don't do just like there is sins of things that we do. Does that make sense? There's the sin of commission where you actually do something wrong. And then there's the sin of omission where you actually leave out something that you were supposed to do. Whether it be giving, whether it be serving, whether it be loving, whether it be ministering on the street, whether it be praying for somebody. Barrett and I were talking about this before church. There has been numerous times, and I'm guilty of this, where someone has asked me to pray for them. And I said, yes, I will do that. And maybe I got off the phone with them because they had called me and then Faith says something to me and it distracts my attention and I go the whole week and never think about it. And then I see them again and they're like, thank you so much for praying for me. And I'm like, uh, you are so welcome. I will pray for you as soon as this conversation's over. I've done that. So now I try to make it a point as soon as somebody asks me, even if it's just a three-second prayer, I pray for them. And then hopefully I'll remember to say a more in-depth in prayer for them later in my own personal devotion time. But I am human and I do make mistakes. Unfortunately, that's sin. Supposed to pray for somebody and you don't. That's a type of sin. That's a type of lacking love. And I won't go into the... We'll just, we'll just move on. The next sin or the next type of ground is when he sows it and it goes among thorns. And it says that the thorns rise up and choke the Word, and the thorns are the cares of this life, and the riches and the lust. And if Barrett would have continued on in 1 John 2, it would have, all the, this is all that's in the world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Barrett did a good job, so I won't go there. But the point is this. I'm just going to have a little anecdotal story here. Imagine that I'm uh, just a person, just a regular, I say regular, I'm a person in, the con in a congregation of a church. I'm a married man with children. And I'm just going to use that as the construct of the story because that's me personally, so nobody thinks that I'm describing them because I'm not. And I get a, an offer from my job. And they say, listen, we've got this promotion for you. It's 15000 more a year than, than what you were making. But you're going to have to be gone one week out of the month traveling. No big deal. One week a month every month. No big deal. Okay, I can do that. 15000 that's going to provide a lot for my family. I do that for a couple months, and then they come back and they say, okay, listen, we want to increase that to a $30,000 a year raise, but we're going to need you to be gone two, maybe three weeks a month, every month. Okay. And then... They tell me, we're going to need you to have your phone and be available on call 24-7. So now I'm gone two to three weeks a month, every month, and I'm on call 24-7. So I have no time that's strictly set apart for me and my family. And then they come back and they say, okay, listen, you've already been at a $30,000 raise. Now we're going to bump it up to a $50,000 raise. But in addition, we're going to have to hire you a secretary. While, and she's going to go on these business trips with you. It's going to be you and her. We're going to fly you out. You guys are going to stay in the same hotel, you know, different rooms, but stay the same hotel. Now, two to three weeks a month, on call 24-7, and I have a secretary that's with me more than my wife is. 
And let's just say for the purpose of this anecdotal story that she's a former Sports Illustrated model. Just for the purpose of the story. So now I am a man who was in a Christian church, sincerely, completely devoted to this Christian church. I get a job offer. My family's been struggling with money, but I accept it, and I'll be gone one week a month because it's 15000 more a year, and that'll take care of our financial trouble. But now they extend me another offer, and now I'm afraid I might lose the job if I decline this offer. So I accept a $30,000 job offer, but I'm gone over 50% of the time, and I'm needed on call 24-7, so I have no time that's isolated for my devotion with me and my family or my devotion with my, my God. No time alone with my wife. No time contributing and sowing into the lives of my children. No telling what they're going to grow up like. And now they hire a secretary who's a former Sports Illustrated model who's going to be gone with me. Do you see what I'm saying? And, and I know that this is just kind of an off-the-wall, perfect storm picture. But what I'm saying is this man, hypothetical man, was a devout Christian, was founded in the Word, but then slowly a thorn began to twist itself around him. And the first thing that it did was it kind of cast a shade over. So there was no light pouring in him anymore because he didn't have time for church. And then after the shadow was cast and he wasn't getting light, it began the root system of thorns. They grow out so broad. They're shallow, but they grow out so broad so they suck all the moisture out of the ground. And so now I'm not getting any moisture from the ground, which is how plants, plants have a process photosynthesis where they suck in sunlight and they mix it with the water from the ground and it creates sugar and it nourishes and feeds the plant. So now this root system has cut off my sunlight, so I'm not getting any new revelation, new word import from God. And now my root system, which I was so strong and rooted in Christianity that fed me so well, is now it's not even there because it's so choked out by the cares of this world, by financial cares, by social status cares by relational cares, worries and stresses of things. Do you not think that if that man was like, I can't afford to be away from my wife and my children for one week, that one week, that's 25% of the time every month, that's crucial in the development of my family and my children. Do you not think that God would have moved in and provided another way? Of course He would have, because He's God and He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. But when we allow our focus to become on the cares of this world, it doesn't say cares of this world just in the sense of the things that are good that we attribute our desires and our cares towards. It's the things that stress us out. The things that make us cringe when we're like, I don't know if we're going to be able to pay our bills this month. Maybe I need to take and go take that promotion that takes me out of town 25% of the time. And if you do go out of town, that's not, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying that this individual, this hypothetical individual, allowed the cares of the world to so compound that God had no time and place in his life, his family and his wife had no time and his place in his life, and then progressing that sin to the extreme and destroying his entire family became ease and inevitable. Romans 10. I should have turned there too. I'm terrible about that. I promise, I don't know if you've, you've picked up on this, but 1 John, John 3.16, the part that we're actually talking about is whosoever believes. We're talking about faith. And I, all of these 
pictures, the parable of the sower, it's all been about the Word of God. So now we're going to tie the two together and let them marry. Romans verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That looks like the, the perfect and final answer to Nicodemus's question. You will be saved. If you believe and confess, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same is Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So the interesting thing about the parable of the sower, the man sowing is Christ. The Son of Man sowing the Word of God, the Word of Christ. It's one and the same. Word of Christ, Word of God are the same thing. Christ is God. He's sowing the Word. He doesn't distinguish who He sows the Word to. And in sowing the Word, we look here, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word. The Word of God is that which produces faith in us. The reason that Thessalonians says not all men have the faith is because we have allowed our hearts to be too hardened. We've shot up but never took time to lay foundations and have root. Or we've allowed the cares and the worries and the stresses and the desires and popular things of this world to choke the Word out in us. That's the reason that not all men have faith. It's not because God hasn't dealt faith. It's not because God hasn't sowed faith. Romans 12.3, God has given to every man the measure of faith. He gives every man the measure of faith, in fact, by sowing the seed of the Word of God to every man. We have the distinct ability to prepare ourselves to be ground ready to receive that Word and let it grow and take root in us so that we can produce a harvest, some 100, some 30, some 60. Or we can let sin harden our heart and the devil can steal that word away. Or we can not worry about doctrine and theology and foundations and we can shoot up with all of our zeal and lack knowledge and wisdom. And when the persecution comes, we don't know why we believe what we believe. And so we die and we walk away altogether whether that be 10 days or 10 years, or we can allow the cares of the world and the stresses and the worry, whether it be dollars and cents or sickness and affliction or social standing, to choke that word out in us and we die that way and walk away. Or we can prepare ourselves and soften our hearts before God and let God reign all in all. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth. I would really like to translate it this way for the purpose of our foundational study. Whosoever believeth and continues believing in Him. Whosoever has faith and holds on to that faith at all cost, 
Whosoever gives everything that they have, no holds barred to win Jesus Christ. Paul says, I count it all as loss. The King James goes so far to say, I count it all as dung. Everything is the equivalent of something that you flush in comparison to the glory of Christ Jesus. Everything is loss. Christ is gain. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you a verse. And this will be our closing. Faith, no words or nothing. Would, you, would we sing Amazing Grace again? Are you unprepared for that? Yes, Amazing Grace. Softly, and then once we close, we'll sing it together as a congregation. Glad I got to put you on the spot. I haven't done that yet. John chapter 3. I'm going to read the last verse of the chapter. Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whosoever does not believe, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And then my motif, my favorite verse, or one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is John 3, verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When all is said and done, when everything is laid down, all the chips are on the table, we can go and we can use apologetics and we can try and defend the gospel till our hearts bleed. But the one thing that we have to do, if we're going to receive the testimony of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to hold this, then we have to set our seal, our heart to this, that God is true. I don't care about anything else. I don't care if I can't answer their questions. I don't care if that doesn't make sense to me. I don't care if that looks like a conflict and contradiction in the Scripture. I'm going to pray and fast and search and study until I see what the truth is because if I'm going to receive His testimony, then I have to set my heart to this one fact and that's God is true. So whosoever believes and continues to believe, so the, the next all of salvation is all of salvation is all of faith enduring faith persevering faith faith that's preserved by God it's all of God all of grace all of Christ all of faith and it's all because of his great love towards us all because of his amazing grace go ahead faith